But Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 18, and I'm going to take us up to chapter 5, verse 2. Most of verse 2. How's that? Matthew 4, 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus that is, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Let's pray that prayer, we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm glad you guys all made it out. Happy Epiphany to everyone. Uh, I want to give a quick thanks to John and David for preaching these past two weeks. I profited very much by their sermons. I hope you all did too. And more importantly, I got an entire church season off. In retrospect, if I was going to take a season off, I probably could have taken not the shortest season in the calendar, but, you know, something a little meatier, you know. Like if I'd taken Epiphany off, I could be in Florida now. But anyway, it wasn't really time off as you can imagine. I, I had to spend a lot of days just catching up on paperwork and things. And one of the things I needed to do was start reflecting on our new sermon series. Now, as you all know, we recently finished a little series in Acts. I actually counted it. There were 90 sermons in that series. And then we took a break for Advent, and now, as we enter a new season, it's a good time to reflect and reset. It always is at this time of year. We've been trying desperately in our house, and the results haven't been great so far. But, you know, when Christmas is over, that's how we try to do, is reset. And after we spent all that time in Acts, and I, I know some of you thought I was stretching it out just to buy time. I really wasn't. But uh, the main character in that book, we said, was the Holy Spirit. And the main theme, primary theme of the book, was evangelism, which is really the Holy Spirit's work. And pastors love to preach that kind of book. Uh, it's a book filled with energy and, and power and growth. And, you know, what pastor doesn't like growth? So I confess, you know, it would have been my hope that, you know, you preach through Acts. That's going to fuel like a revival, right? Seeing the Holy Spirit in action is going to spur us to take big risks for the gospel and talk to people about Jesus and invite them to church. And I don't know, I'm still, you know, we're waiting. Results come eventually, right? But, but the emphasis of the book was evangelism, right? The announcement of the good news. Jesus had come, he had died, he had risen from the dead, he was now at the right hand of the Father, he had sent the Holy Spirit. It was an exciting time, everything was new, and by the time the book was ended, uh, we had seen the gospel preached everywhere from like Egypt to Syria and Turkey and Greece and Italy and all the islands in between, and Jesus had fulfilled his promise, essentially, to make his disciples into witnesses who would testify to the ends of the earth. But what happens after that? 
And we saw hints of this in the book of Acts because it's not as if Paul and the others provided no follow-up to any of these congregations that they started. They appointed elders, right? And they left leaders behind to shepherd the churches. And Paul often went back and checked on churches that he had planted previously. But we all know that our walk with Christ doesn't end with our conversion. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear about deathbed conversions. And some may say that that's kind of like buying fire insurance when the house is already up in flames, but... I have nothing against deathbed conversions. I, I, my great-grandmother confessed Christ in her last couple of days in, in, in a nursing home. Uh, her daughter, my, my great-aunt, prayed with her, and tears were shed, and I think that the Lord heard her. But one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture, right, is when Jesus tells the repentant thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So what saves you is your faith in Christ and not the works that you do afterward. Otherwise, how could the thief hope to see Jesus? Salvation, in the sense of being made right before a holy God, that the justification element is not dependent on how well you live things out after your conversion, and praise God for that. But faith in Christ demands obedience, and that's hard. And in a way, I have sometimes, this is going to sound ridiculous, I almost envy the thief on the cross because he didn't have to figure out the ups and downs of the Christian life. His opportunity to sin again was kind of limited, you know what I mean? Um, But for the rest of us, we have to deal with the messiness of discipleship. Most of us don't have the luxury of a deathbed conversion. Uh, You're all here this morning, which means you're all alive, I think, so far. And Lord willing, you will make it home okay this afternoon. And that means unless you die in the pew right now, most of you will have more time than the thief did, right? And more time doesn't mean that it's more time to do exclusively good things, right? It also means more time to screw things up. And that's the biggest dilemma, I think, for many of us as Christians. It's not that the gospel story confuses us, and it's not the doctrine that's the problem. It's the practice of our faith. We like the justification by faith part, but sanctification is kind of a bear. It's one thing to trust Christ, it's quite another to obey him. We like him as our savior, we don't like him quite as much as our Lord. But that's the trick. Uh, If Jesus is the Lord, then he is the Lord of every part of salvation. Not only justification, but sanctification as well. And both justification and sanctification are a work of the Holy Spirit. And if we're united with Christ, then we don't get to pick and choose which parts of Christ we get. You can't be justified without also being sanctified. So as Christians, we're required to obey our master. And the same Holy Spirit who brought you to new life in Christ will also empower you to live more and more like him. But the question becomes, since most of us are not confessing Christ on our deathbeds, right, what do we do with the time between now and when he calls us home? How do we live this life? What should we do now that we belong to Christ? What happens after evangelism? Well, these are all questions of discipleship. And that's what this series is going to be about. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is really about discipleship. How many of you think of yourselves as disciples? A couple of hands, okay. What does that even mean, really, right? In broad terms, I guess it just means that you're a follower, right? Uh, You've decided to follow Jesus. All right. And that's what the earliest disciples did too, right? Matthew doesn't cover the calling of all the disciples in this passage, but as soon as Jesus comes out of the wilderness, right, just after this uh, section we read in Luke, really, uh, he calls out Simon and Andrew and James and John, 
They immediately leave their boats and their father. They just walk away and they follow him. They are instant disciples, even though there was no sales pitch. It's kind of like that Simpsons line about subliminal, liminal, and superliminal messaging, right? Hey, you, join the Navy. That's superliminal, right? Uh, Jesus makes a superliminal calling to his disciples. Hey, you, follow me. And, you know, in Mark's gospel... Mark constantly uses the phrase immediately. His gospel reads as if Jesus was constantly just running from scene to scene, right? Which is why Reverend Green calls it the action-adventure gospel. But my wife observed how Matthew, who is not the action-adventure guy, uses the phrase immediately twice in that section of the passage. I'll read it again. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James and other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. One gets the impression, right, that the first disciples had no idea what they were getting into. Jesus doesn't show them the terms and conditions or anything, right? And that line about the fishers of men, that really doesn't clarify a whole heck of a lot. And yet, they immediately follow. They they drop their nets, they walk away, and they follow Jesus. And that is the first step in discipleship, dropping everything immediately to follow Jesus. You have to respond to his call. You can't be a disciple if you're not going to walk with him. So Jesus gathers this small core group of guys, but then he starts gathering a crowd. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we start off with these four fishermen, and it quickly escalates. Within three verses, Jesus has this massive throng following him around, and they're coming from everywhere. It's all the surrounding regions, basically. And one of the things that struck me was how little emphasis Matthew puts on any details here. He he doesn't describe a single one of these miracles He doesn't give any accounts of any of the sermons or the lessons that Jesus taught in this lead-up. He gives a broad-brush picture. You know, Jesus preached a few sermons. He did a ton of healings. He did some exorcisms. And now tons of people were following. And on paper, it looks like Jesus is an overnight success, right? He's become the talk of the town. And if you go back to verse 12, Matthew specifies Jesus had begun his ministry right after John was arrested. And that's what Luke recorded as well. So basically, Jesus is picking up where John left off. Many of these faces in the crowd are probably the same groupies that have been following John around, right? But the fact that Matthew doesn't give any details at the end of chapter 4 seems telling to me because Matthew's emphasis here is not on the miracles yet. He'll talk about them later. The only details we get concerning anything is really just the calling of the disciples. Matthew's focus is not on the massive crowds, but the calling of the disciples. His focus is on the discipleship. The description of the crowds is just a setup for the Sermon on the Mount. But the sermon is actually going to ultimately separate the true disciples from the pretenders. 
So what does it mean to be a disciple? A few hands went up. People thought of themselves as disciples. Most of us probably would like to imagine that we're one. Well, I think so much of Matthew's gospel, including the Sermon on the Mount, should be read through the lens of the ending. And if you were to turn, you don't have to turn right now to chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel. It's one of the most well-known passages. It's the Great Commission. The book closes this way. It says, Jesus came... And said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We could do a whole sermon series probably just on that commission, but the main point that I want you to see today is that the command that we are given is not simply to win people over with arguments. It's not even to make people into believers. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The command that we are given is to make disciples. That's the whole point that Matthew's book is building up to. That's the central guiding theme. That's the goal. The focus is the application in discipleship, and that's where so many of us struggle the most. I hear it all the time. I, I hear it from people in this church and outside of it. But, you know, I'm talking about people who believe the gospel, people who affirm all the right reformed doctrines and everything else, and yet struggle in the day-to-day living out of their faith. We can all relate to that. So we need guidance, don't we? And in many ways, Jesus gives his clearest guidance in these upcoming chapters. It's in this sermon that he summarizes so much of what being a disciple looks like. Now, most of you know that the Bible has a lot of rules in it. That's certainly the stereotype, right? Uh, how many of you make New Year's resolutions? Wow. Well, we got one sucker in the audience. That's good, <laughs> Phil. That's great. I never bother, right? I like to set the bar low. If you set the bar low, you'll always overachieve. That's my motto. Um, But we all know that, you know, if you're going to do that, that really spiritual people will commit to reading their Bibles more, right? And many will commit to reading the Bible in the year, right? And that's great. But if you're like me, my guess is the vast majority, if they try to do the straight-through reading thing, they will get as far as Leviticus and stop. Why? Because that's where the law gets really dense. Now, I happen to know there are hints of the gospel that you can find even in the law. I preached my ordination sermon on mold regulations in Leviticus 14. I know. But it can certainly be harder to see in an obvious way the gospel in the Old Testament law. It's not as obvious. And some of the laws in the Old Testament, it's true, no longer apply to us. And theologians debate whether or not certain regulations are still in effect, and sometimes it's not entirely clear. Uh, Some say that unless Jesus said otherwise, you have to obey it all. That can lead to some weirdness about mixing the fabrics in your tunic, but sure. Um, On the other hand, some say that unless Jesus affirmed a specific law, it's no longer in effect. All right, look, I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to settle those questions this morning. That's not my goal. But no serious Christian theologian will debate that Jesus' clear commands ought to be obeyed. And the Sermon on the Mount represents some of his very clearest teachings. He doesn't teach most of this in parables that need interpretation. Jesus is not going to try to be tricky here with us. Most of the sermon is pretty clear. The hard part is obeying it. Now, I'm not even going to get into the sermon itself today. My goal this morning was to set the scene. But to finish setting the scene, I want us to look at the very beginning of chapter 5. 
Just the first two verses again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You know, it's, it's interesting. As soon as Jesus sees these crowds, his fame has spread, right? He's become a big deal very quickly. And he sees these crowds, and he goes up on a mountain. Why? To get away from them? He kind of goes out of the way. And Matthew's gospel, more than any other, is, it's the most Jewish gospel, people say. It's, it's very concerned with how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Uh, and it's not a mistake that Matthew draws our attention to Jesus going up on the mountain and preaching this sermon from a mountaintop because this is essentially a picture of Jesus imitating Moses. Matthew spends the whole book painting Jesus as the new and better Moses, as well as the new and greater Israel. And Matthew's readers would have recognized this right from the start. It's, it's a favorite theme of Matthew's. Uh, Jesus wanders in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days, just like Moses led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus miraculously fed his people in the wilderness, just like Moses fed the people with manna from heaven. Uh, baby Jesus gets called out of Egypt, just like Moses got uh, called Israel out. And now Jesus ascends the mountain and brings back the law, like Moses did. You are supposed to see Moses in this story. Reverberations of the law-giving at Sinai. Matthew is setting this sermon up to be Jesus' take, Jesus' interpretation of the law. In other words, if we're Christians wondering which parts of the law are still in effect, this is the law that still applies no matter where you stand on mold regulations. What Jesus is about to say is a big deal. But I think that the critical moment to see today and the turning point kind of happens once Jesus sits down. Because what does Matthew say? He says his disciples came to him. And then Jesus opens his mouth and teaches them. And this, beloved, is what discipleship means. It's not so much about the execution, it's not how perfectly you obey, it's the fact that you come to Jesus and he teaches you. Discipleship is sitting at Jesus' feet. And I point this out because I, actually what struck me, another thing, this is the first time Matthew uses the word disciples at all in his book. The section we read earlier, if you read the headline, says, uh, you know, the calling of the first disciples. Well, that's an editorial comment, and it's not wrong, but, but Matthew doesn't actually call those guys disciples. He doesn't call anyone a disciple until they sit down at Jesus' feet on the mountain in this scene. He doesn't say those four fishermen came up. It says that it could have been any number of people in the crowd. It's the people who came and sat. And the point is more so that the disciples are not defined as being a crowd of people following Jesus around to see what kind of miracle he's going to do next. A disciple is not a groupie. Coming to Jesus for healing, that's not wrong. He can heal, but it's not what makes you a disciple. A disciple is one who comes to Jesus to sit under his teaching. It's not the people who are seeking a better life. It's, not the, it's the ones who leave their life behind to follow him. It's the ones who are willing to make the effort and climb the mountain just to be near enough that they can hear him. It's sitting at the feet of the master. That's discipleship. Now, 
This series was Elder Seifert's idea, so anything that happens in the next couple of months, I'm going to blame on him. Um, and, but I did think it was a very natural follow-up to the Acts series. Acts being about evangelism, the Sermon on the Mount is going to teach us about discipleship. And it's a very practical thing because if we're going to evangelize our friends and neighbors, it might be good to be prepared to tell them what happens next, what they're getting into, what it means to be a disciple, for Jesus to be their Lord as well as their Savior. And it's good for even those of us who've been following Christ for years. We need the reminder because we need to know what he expects of us. We need to sit at his feet. If we love him as we claim to, we should care what he has to say, and we should be trying to live out his teachings. If your life, after meeting Christ, reflects zero changes from the life you were living before Christ, people will rightly wonder why they should bother following Jesus if it makes so little difference. They will rightly question whether you're truly a disciple at all. It's not without merit when people in this world are turned off by hypocrisy. In the church, we are supposed to walk the walk. The Christian life needs to be marked out by obedience. And we may not follow every of the Old Testament laws, nor, nor should we. Some of them are clearly fulfilled and abrogated, but just a warning. Getting into this series, I want you to expect this series to be rough at times. Because you will feel like a failure as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. I promise you that. Because you and I have all sinned and fallen short. None of us are doing this right. And discipleship is closely related to another word, which is discipline. They kind of go hand in hand. And discipleship has a much nicer tone than discipline, doesn't it? But they are related. And you may very well feel God's corrective hand on you in the coming weeks, and that's okay. Do not despair. The point is to feel convicted of your sin and to repent. None of us are doing this perfectly, and disciples will be disciplined. But Jesus is doing something else here. In this sermon, he will go above and beyond even the Old Testament laws. If you thought that they were rough, Jesus makes it harder. He sets the bar so high that even the best people will squirm and feel uncomfortable. So if you're the sort of person who has read the Ten Commandments and somehow convinced yourself that you're doing pretty okay overall, brace yourself. Because Jesus is going to kick you in the teeth and knock you off your pedestal. And by the time he's done tightening the law, he will be the only one left standing. That's by design. He is the only righteous one on the mountain. And his law is impossible for any of us to keep. And my hope is that by the end of this series, anyway, you will no longer be able to put even the least bit of confidence in yourself, but will only have the option of looking to Jesus and asking for mercy. And that's the first and primary purpose of the law. Jesus is not giving you a 12-step program to a better you, and he's not going to do that. He's going to teach you that he is holy and you are not. He will show you how desperately you need him. He's not going to teach you how to live your best life now. It's going to hit you upside the head with a sledgehammer and leave you begging for mercy, and that's okay. We're going to take our lumps together. But today I want to leave you with a fundamental question that we kind of started with, right? The, the one you need to ask as we approach a series on discipleship, and that is, are you really a disciple of Jesus? And that's a slightly different question than asking if you're just baptized or a member of this church or whatever. 
I assume most of you have been baptized at this point. It's the first act of obedience for a Christian. Uh, Many of you were baptized as infants, and that's wonderful. We're Presbyterians here. We embrace that. Uh, Jesus commanded baptism. Yes. But I want you to remember what he also said in that passage there in the Great Commission. He commanded them to go make disciples. So you were not only called to baptism, but discipleship. And Jesus defined disciples as those who have been, A, baptized, and who have been taught to follow and observe what he commanded. There is a washing away of sin, but it must be followed by discipleship. You can't have one without the other and still consider yourself a disciple. Justification, then sanctification. Jesus is not a buffet. You can't pick and choose. Now, when we lived back in Philly, we discovered a wonderful Brazilian barbecue place on Castor Avenue down there called Picana. They were a buffet. (laughs) And I loved that place. Uh, And I also knew that they charged you by the weight of your plate, not by its contents. So the smart thing was to skip the salad line. I mean, when is that not the smart thing, right? And go right for the meat at the end of the line. If you wanted to get your money's worth, you skipped the rabbit food and went right for the meat. But that is not how Christian discipleship works. You can't come to Jesus for the dessert and skip the salad. If you come to Jesus for fire insurance, he may give it to you, but he's not going to let you settle for that. You can't come to Jesus halfway. It's all or nothing. You can't have Jesus on Sunday morning for an hour and a half and go back to your nets in the afternoon. If you're going to come to Jesus, it's going to mean changes. It means sitting at his feet and taking the sledgehammer to the side of the head. So, how many of you still want to be disciples? Or if you came in here considering yourself a disciple, how many of you are second-guessing? If discipleship means leaving everything behind, and if it means more than being just baptized, if it means coming to Jesus even when he makes it inconvenient, and if it means accepting his hardest teachings, how many of you are ready for that? I don't think this series is going to be very easy on any of us. But here's the good news, and there's always good news. One of the things that's coolest in here is that Matthew calls these people disciples. And he calls them that before they've heard a word of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Which means that what makes them disciples is not their perfect obedience, and it's certainly not their perfect understanding either. We get that abundantly clear. What sets them apart is that they showed up. They're here on the mountain, and their ears are open. We're not even 100% certain if they've been baptized yet. The one defining characteristic is that they came to Jesus. They followed him up the mountain just so that he could teach them. So the mark of a disciple is not perfection, but following Jesus, leaving your old life behind so you can be with him because he has the words of life. It's not about earning God's favor, but sitting at his feet. So the point of this series is not to make you feel like crud, The gospel is still true. You still don't need to earn your way into the kingdom. The goal of this series is to teach you to come to the new and better Moses, to sit at his feet and learn his ways because he is the true lawgiver and he's also the only law keeper. Moses didn't write the law that he brought down. He was just carrying them. 
And he broke that law and wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land. But the second Moses, the better Moses, not only reached the promised land, he wrote the law, he built the promised land, and he built it for you and me, for his people. And his law is the heart of discipleship. And when the first disciples were called, they didn't know anything. They didn't even know who Jesus was yet. But Jesus is not going to leave us where he finds us. Discipleship doesn't end with dropping your nets. He's going to finish the job he started. He who begins a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. Now, Most of us are here because in some sense we have decided to follow Jesus. You're here because he has called you. Maybe you didn't know what that would mean exactly, but here we are. And if we're going to be disciples, we need to be taught. And Jesus will do exactly that. So let's be disciples. Come to Jesus immediately. Let him teach you. Might be ugly, but it's going to be good. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him. Lord, we've had the chance to celebrate that in this past month. Lord, now we begin to, to tackle the, the, the hard stuff where he really gets into the nitty-gritty of life and starts to really demonstrate and show us just how messed up we are and just how far short of the glory of God we are. And yet, Lord, he does call them disciples, those who come to listen and hear these hard words. So, Lord, let us be your disciples. Give us open ears to hear. Train us in the way of godliness, Lord. And help us to look to the only lawkeeper. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his words. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.